Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Alex Pounds. And I'm Andrew Nesbitt. And together we're exploring the technical details of package management, the stories and the history of various projects, and the communities around them too. Before we get started, I wanted to let you all know about a package management track that I'm organising at FOSTEM. FOSTEM is a big open source conference that's held every year in Brussels, and the next one is in February 2018. And the call for papers closes on the 1st of December. If you'd like to give a talk, then check out the link in the show notes. Today, we're joined by Carol Nichols or Goulding, one of the maintainers of Cargo, which is the package manager for Rust, and Crates.io, the Rust package registry. Carol, welcome to The Manifest. Thanks for having me. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into the technical details of the Rust package manager? Sure. So I've been doing a lot of Rust these days. I own my own company called Integer32, and we do Rust consulting. I am on a bunch of the Rust teams, including the cargo team. And I'm the co-author of the Rust Programming Language book, which is online for free, as well as coming to print from No Search Press in May. For people who aren't familiar with Rust, what is Rust and how is it interesting as a programming language? So Rust is a systems programming language that's aiming to be an alternative to C and C++. It's trying to be as fast as those languages and as useful in as many contexts as those are, but trying to solve the problems that cause a lot of the security vulnerabilities like seg faults, buffer overflows, memory safety problems, data races. Those are all impossible in Rust. So it's really exciting to me that it enables you to do systems programming without needing to know about all these dark corners of C and C++. So how does Rust avoid those things? Things like thread safety and uh, the buffer overflows in particular. How does it work to prevent those problems? The biggest difference is the system of ownership, where you're still managing your memory manually, but there's one owner of a piece of data And when that owner goes out of scope, the memory gets cleaned up. So you can never have a reference to data that's invalid because the borrow checker, which is part of the compiler, checks that all your references are valid and that the references don't live any longer than the owner does. So that makes sure that you're never accessing invalid memory and prevents the segvaults. The ownership system also applies across threads. So you only ever have one thread that has ownership of the data and is responsible for cleaning that data up. So that prevents multi-threaded data races. The buffer overflows, if you try and access data outside the bounds of an array, for example, that also counts as an invalid memory access and your program will just panic and stop your program. So it's kind of a mix of compiler level checks and some runtime checks as well. Yes, it's trying to move as much as possible to compile time. A few of the checks have to be runtime because there's just no way you could know based on the user input what's going to happen at runtime. But as much as possible is moved to compile time. And how did you get into doing Rust development and becoming a contributor to the Rust project? I was a Ruby developer before I was a Rust developer. And I'm friends with Steve Klabnick who used to live in Pittsburgh, which is where I live. He came home one year for Christmas talking about this cool new language called Rust. And Steve is the type of person to get excited about new things all the time. So usually it's just like, okay, 
Steve has something new and shiny he's excited about. That's cool. And I kind of didn't pay very much attention. He came home the next year for Christmas and was still talking about it. And at that point, I was like, if anything can keep Steve's attention for a year, then it has to be something good. And at that time, I was doing a lot of Ruby performance tuning, trying to limit the number of memory allocations Ruby was using, trying to make a Rails app go faster and be able to handle more load. And at a certain point with Ruby, you have to drop down a level. And I'm terrified of writing C. So learning about Rust at that time was perfect for me because I'm not terrified to write Rust because the compiler helps you not make those mistakes. So being a web developer and Crates.io being a web application was a familiar way for me to get involved in the Rust ecosystem. And we've got an Ember front end. We've got a JSON API that comes from a Rust backend. So I want to make it really easy for people who are familiar with the front end stuff to start getting involved. You usually need to change a little bit in the front end, a little bit of the back end. So I want to make this an easy way to get involved in a Rust project. So before we start talking about Crates.io and how that all works, maybe you could tell us about how software in Rust is built and distributed. How does one build a project? How does one pull in dependencies? How does Cargo work in, in the ecosystem? Sure. So Cargo is the package manager and build manager. The way most Rust projects are built is by cloning the repo and then running Cargo build. And that will resolve all the dependencies in the Cargo Tamo file and then compile all of those dependencies, including the current project. So the tooling that Cargo provides is really unique in the systems programming space because C and C++ don't really have a universal package manager and build system. Every project's a little bit different. Systems programmers are not used to having this tooling available that JavaScript, Ruby, Python, etc. developers are used to having. So this is a really new, exciting thing to bring to the systems programming space. Maybe this is also a good time to draw a comparison with Go because Go gets used for a lot of system level builds and that does have some of that tooling. Are there any key differences between Rust and Go? So I actually haven't used Go very much, so I might be getting a few things wrong. My understanding is that Go relies a lot on Git for distributing packages and pulling in packages. Is that correct? I heard of some people building a Go package manager. Do you know if that's widely used yet? We had Sam from the Go package management team on, was that the second episode of the podcast maybe? And he has been working on a tool called DEP, which tries to unify a lot of the disparate tools for managing dependencies in Go. I think a lot of it is still based on the Go get command, which doesn't necessarily need to use Git, but ends up nearly always talking to a Git repository and doesn't have any kind of a central source of all the packages. There's no shared namespace that everyone publishes to. You just reference a URL and you say, go get me that URL, uh, which is quite different from how Cargo and Crates work. Yeah, that was kind of my impression. We have Crates.io, which lets people list their packages that they provide as open source things. You can use other packages as dependencies and the whole cargo system recognizes dependencies of dependencies. And 
it follows Semver and lets you specify a Semver requirement and manage updates using the Semver constraints rather than just having one snapshot in time. So Cargo feels a lot like RubyGems or NPM. Was there kind of sources of inspiration and influences that were drawn in during its initial development? Definitely. Yehuda Katz, who was instrumental in creating Bundler, was the original developer of Cargo. So there's definitely huge influences from Bundler in Cargo. And that comes out in the uh, Cargo.toml and Cargo.lock files, which are similar to the gem file and then gem file.lock. And I found the way of specifying dependencies to be very familiar, being familiar with the Bundler world. That also explains why the front end is written in Ember, I guess. Yes, yes. So how does package discovery from a programmer's perspective work within Rust? I mean, what's the usual route for a Rust developer to discover a package that solves their problem? So Crates.io is aiming to be that solution to that problem of, I am looking for a crate to do something. And we're still making a lot of improvements to make this easier and make Crates.io better for this. And we've put a lot of thought into it already. So the main way that people would mostly do this is to go to Crates.io and either search for something or we've recently added categories that are meant to answer the question of, I need a crate to do X, whether that's parsing or HTTP or other things like that. That's what the categories are meant to answer. So we're very much trying to collect similar crates that solve similar problems together. We did a survey of people asking how they evaluate crates, how they decide what crates to use when they're working on a problem. And it was super interesting. And the most interesting thing we found that we actually haven't found a good solution for yet is that about 70% of the people responding to the survey said that documentation was what they looked for to decide whether a crate was good quality to use or not. So I think everyone who is offering a crate or a, a library on some package manager could spend more time on documentation. We could all always make our documentation better, and that will make people more confident in choosing our libraries. I'm interested in the categorization you mentioned. How did you come up with the list of categories? We started with categories from Awesome Rust, and then we had a big, long argument about it. And we're still actually arguing about categories that we should add or remove. The Rust ecosystem is still pretty young, so there are some categories that have more things than others. There are some categories where we hope there will be more libraries someday, but there aren't yet. It's definitely a community process. I can imagine you don't want to end up pigeonholing almost the whole community by essentially showing all these existing categories that are really popular, making any new people that come to the, the homepage or the category overview to go, oh, it looks like Rust is only useful for these things because that's what currently exists and you kind of get a, a chicken and egg situation. Yeah, we definitely have a bunch of places like embedded applications. We think Rust is very good for this, but it's not quite there yet and there's a lot of entrenched C and C++ stuff, so it's hard to get Rust libraries in that space, but we're getting there. We're slowly getting there. There's more and more things happening all the time. 
but we definitely want Rust to be a general purpose language. We don't really want to say, oh, Rust can't do anything. So it's interesting that so many people were looking for documentation. And I noticed that Rust has the hosted documentation generation service. I forget the the tool that that... Docs.rs? Yeah, that's it. That's kind of like read the docs, but specifically for packages on crates.io. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, this was created by a community member. It's sort of semi-official at this point, I think. Someone's just started building all the docs for cargo projects. The cargo doc command is part of cargo and provides an easy way to build the documentation for any Rust library that uses cargo and has documentation available. So that standardization has really helped encourage people to have documentation and make it useful and usable. In a project, you can run cargo doc locally and it builds your documentation and the documentation for all your dependencies and has that locally available. So if you're offline for any reason, that is super useful to have that right at hand. So that's one of the features I love about Cargo. And that's focused on, I guess, looking at the method signatures and the kind of arguments that it takes rather than high level guides and tutorial documentation. Yeah, we still have a lot of work to do around the higher level documentation. Cargo Doc is building the documentation comments that go with methods and functions and structs and modules. We do have another kind of documentation, which is if you put a program in the examples directory in a cargo project, those examples get built when you run your tests. And you can put little examples of how to use your library in that directory. And that's a convention to have some sort of use cases shown off for your library. That's really neat. I've never heard of that being built in functionality of expecting there to be a folder called examples. Uh, I can see how that's come around from other communities that will have a naturally like, oh, there's a folder called examples where you can go look, but never actually heard of any tools that are built from that and actually use that. Usually you're going to have to just go in and poke around yourself. That's really neat. One thing I've seen that's a little bit similar to that, I think Python has a thing called the programmer's notebook and I've seen it in a couple of other languages where you can write some documentation or you can write up your project and as you were doing it, you can leave interactive examples. There's a really cool graphics programming thing called the book of shaders, which has a similar kind of structure where it's a tutorial but interleave within there is code which is live evaluated in your browser and you can edit it nice i wonder if there's a way of measuring the quality of documentation based off the existence of comments and the rather than just we can generate the method signatures and their arguments we could actually see if there is a comment for each method at least each public method and rate that across the total number of methods available yeah we've had a lot of arguments about whether this would be worthwhile or not and we haven't implemented anything yet the first objection that people have is oh i can instantly game this by just adding comments that don't actually have any useful information in them so we don't want people to do that you can optionally turn on a warning that will warn you if you have any public methods or structs or anything that don't have documentation. So assuming that you resolve all your warnings before you publish, that can make sure that you've documented everything. 
So there has been a suggestion to show which projects have this optional warning enabled. There's also been a number of scoring schemes to see if there's a readme, if there are examples, the ratio of documentation comments to code, the presence of tests or not. And of course, no one can agree on exactly what this formula should be and if it's worth implementing, if people are going to game it or not. So we haven't really come up with a good solution here for an automated recommendation that shows how well documented a crate is. My feeling is that if someone's gaming it, it will be really obvious once you click through that all the comments say LOL or something. You can definitely add in other metrics to that as well, right? So it doesn't have to be just the analysis of the published code, but if something appears to be incredibly well documented but has never been downloaded, that's a good sign that the community is, sees this as spam or it's not actually useful. So I've done a fair amount of investigation on this with my project libraries.io where we infer the level of quality of a project by looking at how many people use it and how many people reference it across all of open source. So that's not just by download count, but actually by looking at how many open source projects list a given library as a dependency and kind of use that as a way of inferring, well, it must have had some documentation so that someone actually worked out how to use the project. And it also is a like a secondary measure of a lot of other factors. If the project has no license, then a lot of people are going to avoid it if they're running it through any form of compliance or they're using it inside of a big company. It squashes all of the bad traits out without necessarily needing to measure them, especially when some of the measurements of the quality of the community are incredibly hard to pin down. Yeah, we had a really long discussion, which you can see. I'll provide a link to the comments on this RFC, this request for comments. There were a lot of comments on this one. We had a really complicated formula, and ultimately what we ended up deciding on was within a category or keyword, we're ordering by number of downloads in the last 90 days to avoid beating bias by projects that have been around for a long time as opposed to newly popular ones. So we're going with last 90 days. And so far, there haven't been too many complaints, but it's a very fuzzy proxy for the things people actually care about. Looking at reverse dependencies is interesting. Looking at how many other libraries are using that library. But my concern there is that you aren't getting the closed source code and you aren't getting the applications that aren't necessarily shared on places like Crates.io. We aren't really searching all of GitHub yet to find open source applications, but I wonder, is there anything you're doing to look for applications specifically, or are you... Yeah, so we index as much of GitHub, GitLab, and Bitbucket as possible, including cargo toml files and their lock files so we do have a lot of that information it's kind of difficult with new languages because there just aren't so many open source projects using them so you just have a lot less data to work with i guess one way of getting around this is having different ways of discovering things as well there used to be a, a site called fresh meat which showed new open source projects as they were published. So you can get a different view and kind of get exposure for projects that are just coming out the door rather than the ones that are highly established and allowing people to see the recent downloads or 
recent activity gives you a good indication that there are some people behind the project. Although I've tried to shy away from measuring too much around the people involved in the project, because often that puts a lot more pressure on them (laughs) inadvertently. Yeah. And sometimes projects are just kind of done or they're small and they do what they're supposed to do and they don't really need a lot of constant updates. Carol, you mentioned RFCs a couple of times. What is an RFC and why is it such a big deal within the Rust world? So Rust's governance is also open. Mozilla is the main sponsor of Rust and was instrumental in getting Rust started, but Rust is governed by people who also don't work at Mozilla. And the way the Rust community makes big decisions about how Rust should work is through this request for comment process. So there's a repo where you can submit a pull request and fill out a template explaining what change you want to make and why. And then anyone can comment on it. And then the relevant subteams will have kind of a vote saying whether it should go into final comment period or not at which point it's indicated that all of the arguments, all of the trade-offs have been surfaced, and then the sub-team makes a decision taking into account all the community feedback. So this process is really interesting to me to be able to influence and see how the language is evolving. It's also kind of tiring to have lots of comments on lots of different changes all happening all at the same time. So actually, at this point in the year, we've decided to kind of take a break from RFCs. We're in what we're calling the impl period, where from about September through the end of 2017, we're concentrating on implementing all of the things that we've already decided to do, rather than arguing about new things that we could possibly do, because we have kind of a backlog of RFCs that have been approved but not implemented at this point. But I love the style of governance even though it can be tiring, from the Ruby and Rails ecosystem that have kind of BDFLs, where there's kind of one person who has the ultimate say. And that's not really the case in Rust. There's always going to be a group of people who take input from the community and make decisions out in the open. We still might not make the decision that you wish we would make, but at least you'll know why we made the decisions and know that we've considered things that are important to you. Could you share some specific examples of things that are currently being worked on? Maybe something that's in this implementation period that got decided through the recent round of RFCs? Sure. So there's actually over 30 working groups as part of the impl period. There are some that are related to Cargo and Crates.io. The Crates.io one is just kind of paying down some technical debt. The cargo-related ones, we want to integrate better with build systems that large companies might have, like Buck or Basil. And there's a lot of work to figure out how cargo can best fit into those ecosystems. So that work is kind of in the experimental phase. There was an experimental RFC laying out the kinds of things we need to try. Another cargo-related one that I'm really excited about is public and private dependencies. While the version resolution in cargo works pretty well, there's one aspect that it doesn't really consider, which is... So you can have two versions of the same crate in your dependency tree, and you can have types that come from those two versions. And if you have two different versions, those types are counted as different, 
and you get error messages that say things like expected URL got URL and you're like what <laughs> I gave you what you wanted but actually it's it's a different version of the crate so what we're going to be adding into cargo eventually is the ability to mark a dependency as part of your public API or not and if a crate is part of a crate's public API then cargo will make sure that no two public versions of that crate end up in one resolved graph of dependencies, thus making that error message impossible because it'll be taken care of at version resolution time. So this will be really exciting when it's done because it'll get rid of all these weird error messages that happen way later than the real problem, which is that you're getting different versions of the same crate. This is an example which has come up two or three times, I think, in previous episodes. So hopefully one which our listeners are intimately familiar with, this idea that two different dependencies can both have a shared sub-dependency but end up on different versions and therefore end up with incompatibilities. In the Rust world, will programmers have to specify a particular version or will they be able to do a kind of a range query on those public dependencies and, I guess, allow Cargo to figure out the nitty-gritty? Yeah, I think for the crates that use the crates in their public API is to still have a range. And we're trying to figure out ways to make sure that that range is expressed correctly. For example, if a crate has version 1.0 and then it adds a function in 1.1 and my library crate specifies that it can depend on any version 1, but... I use the new function that was added in 1.1. So really my lower bound should be 1.1 with a public dependency. But it's possible that I might forget to update that because while I'm locally testing, I'm using the latest version, but someone depending on me might get a resolution to the lower version and then the code wouldn't work. We're working on adding a piece when you cargo publish to ignore your local development lock file and use the lowest version of your ranges, but make sure that your lower bounds are accurate. And then if they're not, stop the process, don't publish the crate, and recommend that you update your lower bounds. So there is going to need to be some tooling to make sure these version ranges are accurate. And ultimately, we'll have to see how this shakes out. But I think it'll be better than what we have currently. This sounds like a good jumping off point to look at cargo from the perspective of a package maintainer as we talked before about how a rust programmer might use it but if somebody was developing some rust software and they wanted to publish it as a package what's that process like for them sure so you need to have a cargo.haml that has a description and a version and you have to have an account on crates.io which hooks into your github account and then you get a token that you save locally, and then you're able to type cargo publish, which packages your code, then unpackages it, makes sure it builds, and then publishes that on crates.io for anyone to use. So we've tried to make the process of publishing a package just as easy as pulling down a package to use. Currently, there's only one registry for crates.io and that uses a single namespace, right? So everyone is publishing to the same namespace. Is that proved to be a problem? I don't think so. This is an issue, a suggestion that people make fairly often, 
that if we had namespaces so that when I publish a crate called XML, it would actually be called Carol's 10 cents slash XML. And they advocate that this would solve a bunch of problems, namely that you don't have to think of a unique name, that your name more accurately describes what your crate does, that you get authority because you can see more clearly who has created that package and whether you trust them or not. But ultimately, I think this creates more problems than it solves. If namespaces are tied to your GitHub account, then Crates.io will also be forever tied to only GitHub accounts. And I think we'd like to expand to allowing authentication through other accounts eventually. So if you let anyone pick any namespace they want, then you have the same problem that you have with crates, just a level higher. So I could make a crate that has an official trademarked name, and I could do the same thing with namespaces. I could make a namespace that looks really official, but I'm actually not, I don't actually work for that company or anything like that. I also think that coming up with unique names is good, and RubyGems has had a single namespace, and people have not run out of names and talking about a crate you can't just say oh use the xml crate you have to say oh use so and so's xml crate and i think that is more difficult to talk about so i have pros and cons both ways i guess and looking across different package managers they make different choices and i think having a well functioning namespace requires you have some form of moderation which is going to cost people's time at least which usually ends up costing people money yeah that's a huge thing for us because we're still a really small community and we just don't have people available to do that yeah we see in the the maven community they have namespaces that aren't based on your username but instead are org dot company name and if you want to create a new namespace or you want to publish a new package to a namespace, you have to be authorized. And that has to go through a moderation queue, essentially. I don't think it takes too long, but it's definitely a barrier to actually publishing something brand new. But what that does on the flip side is means that no one can sneak a project that looks like it's pretending to be published by Google because that's going to get caught in the moderation queue. I can't make org.goggles and then add in something that looks like it was a Google project because that's going to get caught, which is a really good way of avoiding typo squatting issues. But on the flip side, it must be kind of at least one person's full-time job given the size and the amount of new things that are published also slows down or puts barriers to people publishing new things you might end up having someone making a namespace that is just free for all and anyone else can throw in there so you kind of have this balance between them i get the feeling that it kind of you want to add a namespace once your community has grown to a certain size and you kind of want to be able to slow things down or at least provide some more levels of gateways to stop potential bad actors but often that can be solved by having separate registries rather than just trying to wedge everyone into the same place so that a company can say okay well we don't necessarily trust the single namespace on crates.io so we're gonna use 
enterprisecrates.io because they're ensuring that everyone plays nicely and doesn't typo score on anything. Yeah, we definitely want to support multiple registries and we're working on making multiple registries easier in cargo. And I'm very interested in solving it from that direction rather than adding namespaces to Crates.io. One other thing that springs to mind around the namespaces, and we see it a lot in GitHub, is you get slightly weird incentives to keep a project owned under your own personal username namespace. So if I have a project which is on Andrew slash my awesome crate dot RS, then it becomes used by everyone. If I leave that on my username, actually everyone is seeing me all the time, even if I'm not actually involved in maintaining the project anymore. And that means that I'm going to get kind of a free reputational bonus from it. But I've also made myself the single point of failure for that project, especially in terms of GitHub users versus orgs. I'd be the only person that could administer that project, adding new maintainers and things like that. If I went away, that project would potentially be completely stuck. Whereas you want to move it over to an org, but you lose the benefit of saying this was built by me. Yeah, we definitely want to encourage more team ownership. And we do integrate with GitHub organizations and teams to be able to add people to be able to publish crates. And I do think it's important to not have the brand of a crate tied to a particular person who might not be on the project forever. Yeah, they're just to try and uh, make the project a little bit more sustainable and become more of a group shared resource rather than this is me as an individual in my code, which has very different outcomes, right? But if you want to make your project successful for the long term, you really need to be working on it with other people and sharing the, the responsibility and removing yourself as a single point of failure. Yes, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the cargo project. Have there been any notable events over the years since you've been involved in cargo? How old is cargo? Has it been multiple years? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely functional before Rust 1.0, which was May of 2015. So Rust did launch with cargo available. It has gained a variety of features over the last two, two and a half years, however long it's been. It started only being able to install from GitHub, and shortly thereafter, Crates.io existed, and you were able to install from there. Um, it's also gained things like workspaces and search and lots of other features as part of Cargo and Crates.io. The... Most interesting story that I've been involved with was the day that a crate broke cargo for all Windows users. I don't know if that sounds interesting to you. Yes, that is exactly the story <laughs> that I was hoping you would talk about. Good, good. So one day, it was, a, it was a Sunday, and I was doing some grocery shopping, and I got a message from a friend of mine in the Rust community saying, Hey, I think cargo's broken. So it turned out someone published a crate that was named NUL. And the way Cargo worked at that time was when you publish a crate, a file gets created in what we call the Cargo registry. And that file has the name of the crate as the file name. And the file contains a lot of the metadata that Cargo needs to be able to resolve dependencies and so forth. 
this registry is stored in a Git repository. So Cargo on the client side would check out that repository on a developer's computer and then look through the metadata for each file. Any operation that Cargo does updates the registry pretty much to make sure that you're looking at the most up-to-date view of the ecosystem. The problem here is that NUL is a reserved file name on Windows and you're not allowed to name files with the name NUL. So as soon as you touched Cargo after this crate had been published, it would pull down the latest version of the registry, create a file called NUL, and then refuse to do anything after that. So we typically don't unpublish crates because of the whole uh, left pad incident. So you can only yank crates, which prevents you from creating new dependencies on a crate. But if you have an existing dependency on a crate, you can still install that crate. We actually had to break this and do an unpublish of the NUL crate to let people continue to use Cargo on Windows. And then we added all of the Windows reserved file names to our list of blacklisted names that you're not allowed to publish crates. So that was like an exciting Sunday. One thing which you mentioned then is also something that previous guests have mentioned as something they envy about the Cargo and Rust ecosystem is that ability to yank packages. But what is a Cargo yank? Sure. So if you publish a crate and then you find out that it's broken in some way or it has a security vulnerability and you want to keep people from starting to depend on that version of that crate, you can say Cargo yank and that will mark the crate as yanked in Crates.io's registry. And then Cargo, when it's looking for crates and versions to use when doing version resolution, it will not choose that crate to start depending upon. If you have it in your cargo.lock file, so you've already depended on it before it was yanked, your project will continue to build. So no one can break someone else's project by unpublishing, since it's not really unpublished, it's just kind of tagging it. We do have some suggestions in the future of adding a reason to the yank, because sometimes it's not so dire, it's just, oh, it didn't function the way the author intended, so they yanked it. And other times it's like, no, actually you should upgrade right now because there's a big security problem. So there are different reasons why people might yank, and that's not really expressed in the yank or not yank uh, metadata that we store right now. This has caused problems when there is not a newer version to upgrade to. I would have to look up the details about this story, but I know we've had some problems when people have yanked a version but not had a newer version. And then there were people with version constraints that had no crate that would resolve those constraints. Is the, the yank at the version level or at the project level or both? It's at the version level, and we do want to start treating crates who have had all their versions yanked a little bit differently in the Crates.io web interface. Right now, it's there are some weird error pages that you can get to when all the versions for a crate have been yanked. Sometimes people do that when they don't want to maintain a crate anymore. And the name is still reserved, and those existing versions that have been published are still there to avoid breaking people's projects. But the original author might be open to passing off the name and newer versions to someone else. But it's really hard to get at who owns that crate. There are some improvements to be made there as well. 
So most of the time, yanking will solve problems when people do want to withdraw a package. But you mentioned that there have been some cases where you have gone in and done a hard unpublish. One of them being the case where Cargo ended up creating this null file on Windows, which was an illegal name. But what other circumstances have you seen that have required a full unpublish? That's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. We really try and reserve this for extraordinary circumstances. Like people will email us and ask us to unpublish their crate because they want to make the name available again. And we don't unpublish for that reason. We advise people to leave a message that says they are open to transferring the name, but we don't delete things and remove the crate in that situation. I have talked to Ashley Williams from NPM and they have a policy now, I believe, which is within 24 hours, you can do a hard unpublish. As we grow, we might want to look into implementing something like that. But so far, this has worked out okay. Based on the amount of emails that I get from libraries indexing NPM, there's going to be a lot of people accidentally publishing things that they didn't mean to publish out to the npm registry so i'm not surprised that they need to yank things or allow people to yank things themselves or completely delete them i guess rust hasn't had any trouble with people sending takedown notices or people uploading copyrighted material that they shouldn't have done not really there's a flag in cargo toml you can say publish equals false and then cargo will refuse to publish that crate So that prevents accidental publishes. Again, I think we've just been small enough to not hit these problems at the scale that NPM does. When you publish a package, does it actually put the source code that Cargo is considered to be part of that published release into the registry? Or is it the registry is linking off to a GitHub repository or other similar source where it can find the source of that release? So the Git registry contains a very small amount of metadata, mostly just what Cargo needs to be able to resolve versions. So it has version constraints and which crates depend on which other crates. The actual source code lives on S3 in these .crate files, which are tarballs. So when you publish a crate, your .crate package gets uploaded to S3 and served from there. And the registry index knows where to find the tarball for each version. Right. So that's very similar to how CocoaPods works. Actually, CocoaPods is slightly different in that it doesn't necessarily point at a S3 bucket, but points at, say, um, a tagged release on GitHub. Have you run into a similar problem that they did with GitHub essentially telling them to stop using GitHub as a database? We have not run into that problem. And again, maybe that's an issue of scale. So to give you a little bit of context there, CocoaPods were basically storing each of their pieces of metadata by name, and they have a similar top-level single namespace. And they were putting one folder for every package and then putting a file inside that folder for every different version which was uh, either YAML or JSON for storing the the metadata related to that. And as you can imagine, that folder got very, very large and very shallow because it was only one or two folders deep. Git is not very good at handling that, especially when you try and clone 
or just do a partial pull from Git. And GitHub ended up running something like five servers just to host the CocoaPods registry repository because it was causing that much load on their servers. Yeah, the cargo registry does have a different structure to its directories. It has a directory starting with the first two letters of the crate name and then a subdirectory of the next two letters of a crate name. And then within those two subdirectories, it has a file named after the crate that contains all of the versions. So we have a not quite as wide and shallow a directory structure and file structure as that. So perhaps that's why we get around it. Yeah, I think they ended up doing a similar thing. It was sharding by, before they sharded it, they do a base 62 or a base 64 encoding of the name so that they get a fairly consistent set of the number of folders and the number of files inside of each of those. Now they shard it four times. So each package is going to be nested down inside of four folders, which was purely to make Git much happier at handling those things. Whereas a regular database would really not care either way with a with an index laid over the top of it. But of course, you can't then use GitHub as a free host for all of that uh, information. Yeah, we have definitely talked about potentially changing our sharding scheme as crates in the registry grows, since there are a lot of crates that start with Rust. So the R-U-S-T directories have a quite a bit more files in there than some of the other ones. But again, I think we get away with it because we're just not quite at other ecosystem scale yet. Speaking of scale, Rust and Cargo and Crates are smaller projects, but they are also well-used projects used by thousands of people around the world. How is the work on Cargo and Crates.io funded? So many of the developers that work full-time on Cargo are Mozilla employees, and Mozilla pays for the servers and bandwidth costs of Crates.io. I'm an independent contractor. I have gotten contracts to work on Cargo and Crates.io things from Mozilla. So that's currently our largest sponsor for this. We would like to expand our sponsor base. We're working on how best to do that. We're not quite ready to create like a Rust Foundation sort of thing yet. We're definitely encouraging companies who are using Rust to invest by either hiring contractors to take care of something that the company needs or just do maintenance on projects like this, or by having some of their employees spend some time contributing to the maintenance of projects like Cargo and Crates.io. So what makes you hesitant at this moment to create a Rust Foundation? And what would be the tipping point that you'd say, okay, now it's time to set that up? It's mostly around administration costs at this point. We're all so busy working on Rust itself that there isn't really anyone available to spend the time taking care of the administrative parts of setting up a legal foundation, keeping track of the accounting, doing marketing, all of the really important non-code stuff that comes along with running a foundation. You're also not really going to solve the paying people to work on the project as setting up a foundation if it's a charitable organization, because most charitable organizations are not able to pay for code. 
once uh, companies realized that open source could be a tax deductible thing, all of the governments around the world went, wait, wait, we can't just let open source be charity just because it's it's free doesn't mean it's not valuable. And so that's why you see like the Apache Foundation doesn't directly support work on the project for the generation of code. Instead, it it's mostly handling governance and things like owning of trademarks, which I guess Mozilla Foundation are kind of handling right now. Yeah, yes. Mozilla owns the trademarks for Rust and Cargo. We've been really lucky to have Mozilla's infrastructure available, but we do want to make Rust more independent from Mozilla as we grow. As time goes on and we talk to more people and we hear many times that a project is backed either by Google or backed by Mozilla, I'm starting to feel more warmly towards both, I think. There's definitely a lot of infrastructure that the internet runs on that is paid for by Google and Amazon and Facebook. I don't know what the situation is now, but there was definitely a point where Google was the main source of income for Mozilla. So I guess they're indirectly sponsoring Rust. Yeah, I haven't really kept up with the main sources of funding for Mozilla lately. Yeah, I feel a lot better about Mozilla, um, especially the way that they're set up with the foundation that owns the corporate arm. It has a nice level of responsibility in that any extra money that Mozilla makes has to always go back to the foundation. It, it, there's no way of extracting profit directly from either of them. It just keeps the whole thing working towards their overall mission. Yeah, it's definitely not perfect, but it's better than other things, in my opinion. So if there was one feature you could take from another package manager, what would it be? So I already mentioned NPM's unpublished within 24 hours. I think we are going to need that eventually. But for me personally, I miss the ease of customizing the test runner that I'm used to from Ruby world, where you have test unit and RSpec and mini spec, and you kind of hook into a lot of the aspects of that and customize how your tests work and how the output looks and things like that. In Rust, it's kind of complicated. Cargo test is integrated with Rust, the language, more than in other languages. So it's not it's not a simple problem to expose hooks to allow customization of lots of different things. And it's not necessarily high priority either. We have lots of stuff to do and making prettier test output is not necessarily the highest one, but that's one of the very few things that I can think of that I kind of miss. I've thought of a lot of things like Cargo Doc and the community around Semver and culture around using Semver updates correctly that we've kind of baked in from the beginning that I wish other ecosystems had. So I can think of lots of things that Cargo has that I wish other ecosystems had, but that's not really the question. <laughs> That's uh, whenever anyone asks me, what would you consider to be the best package manager? Obviously, that's quite context specific, but I usually point at Cargo and Crates. It it feels like they've learned a lot of lessons and Yehuda obviously being involved. His drawing experience from both Bundler and Yarn in the NPM world, you can definitely feel that there have been a lot of experience gone into the development of the project and understanding of the potential problems that might get tripped over. And when I look at it, I don't see any big pitfalls and the 
like the bear traps that are often left for users to step on that they they're not necessarily well documented or even mentioned that that is a feature that may come back to bite you i guess the only thing that i wish crates.io had was html that was rendered on the server so that it didn't need javascript to function <laughs> look we're working on fast boot support from ember and if there are ember folks listening i would love your help and then we would love to render things server side for you to explain to anyone who's not familiar with fastboot that's essentially running ember on the server and outputting html which can then be served up then i think ember can hook into the html that was generated and start faster as well on the client side is that right yeah, that's my understanding, and I'm a l- still a little fuzzy in learning about Fastboot, but I know it's something that we'd like to do, but I am lacking in experience and knowledge to do that. So please come help me. I have a lot of opinions about server-side rendering and web development in 2017, 2018, and forward, but that is probably a topic for a completely separate podcast. So if you have an appropriate podcast, please invite me on because I would love to talk at length about this. But returning to Rust, is there anything you would do differently now with the benefit of hindsight? I did think of one tiny pitfall that Cargo didn't solve, which is you can have packages that use hyphens or underscores, but they have to be underscores once you move to Rust since hyphen isn't a valid identifier. And I really wish we had just... Like Rust treats them as equivalent, but in your cargo toml, you have to specify them as they were published. And that's probably one of the biggest requests we've gotten is, oh, I published my crate with a hyphen and now I want to publish it with an underscore. And actually you can't because they're considered the same. So we didn't solve all the problems ever, but we, we did learn a lot from a lot of other ecosystems. Is there some way that you could make that work going forwards to help? people avoid that but grandfather in all of the existing ones that were done incorrectly yeah i think there are some ideas to make cargo look up crates equivalently so you could type either hyphen or underscore in your cargo toml and it would work we just fixed the search on crates.io so that it will match on crate names whether you've used a hyphen or underscore so i think we can fix this eventually I just kind of wish we haven't had to deal with it till now. At least the names are case insensitive. NPM, when originally published, had case sensitive names, which, as you can imagine, caused some issues. There's also grandfathered in. So there are some packages that you can get two different packages for the same name with different cases, which is really fun when you try and index that in Postgres. I was just thinking a little bit about this and i am curious if there are any package managers out there which allow full-on utf-8 package names so you could have packages in cyrillic you could have packages in chinese in japanese in any kind of script CocoaPods allows you to have there are definitely packages that are published under emoji names so if people wanted to take their first look at rust where is the best place for them to start So I'm pretty biased, but I think the Rust book that I'm co-author on is excellent. So I would recommend people start with that and send me comments if you don't think it's excellent, especially on the later chapters. 
I also have a project I started called Rustlings, which is little Rust examples that intentionally don't compile. And your job is to figure out how to fix them and make them compile. And it tries to teach you about little things about Rust along the way. I haven't had much time to work on that lately, but I have heard that, that it's useful for people getting started because the Rust compiler is trying to prevent a lot of problems. It is quite picky and that does take a little bit of getting used to. So I made rustlings as a way to practice taking care of error messages while you're not trying to do something else. There's also rust by example, which is more of a showing little examples style of learning rather than the narrative example that the book takes. And O'Reilly is coming out with a Rust book soon, if it's not already out. And that one is more of a reference focus. I would say if you're a a C++ developer and you just kind of need to know what the different parts are, the O'Reilly book might be a better fit for you than the Rust programming language book. And if people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go online for that? I am on Twitter at Carol's Ten Cents. Uh, My company is integer32.com. Those are probably the best places to find me. And GitHub, Carol's Ten Cents as well, to see what I'm working on. That's great. I'm really excited to see how Cargo grows in the future and how the Crates.io community handles the expansion and bringing more people in and hopefully gets ahead of any potential growing pains. Oh, Ashley Williams tells me NPM stories. and I'm just like, okay, we're going to go take care of that before we get there. Because they have like massive spam problems and typo squatting things. And and their scale is just quite a few orders of magnitude higher than ours. So I'm, I'm learning all I can from her before we get there. So I'm really grateful for her help. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for coming on, telling us all about cargo, telling us all about Rust and sharing some of those stories. Thank you for having me. Nice.